Section 10 of Noted Speeches of Abraham Lincoln, edited by Lillian Marie Briggs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Noted Speeches of Abraham Lincoln, edited by Lillian Marie Briggs. Lincoln-Douglas Debate, First Joint Debate, delivered at Ottawa, Illinois, August 21, 1858. Lincoln's Reply, Part 2. Now, my friends, I wish you to attend for a little while to one or two other things in that Springfield speech. My main object was to show, so far as my humble ability was capable of showing, to the people of this country what I believed was the truth, that there was a tendency, if not a conspiracy, among those who have engineered the slavery question for the last four or five years to make slavery perpetual and universal in this nation. Having made that speech principally for that object, after arranging the evidences that I thought tended to prove my proposition, I concluded with this bit of comment. We cannot absolutely know that these exact adaptations are the results of pre-concert, but when we see a lot of framed timbers, different portions of which we know have been gotten out at different times and places, and by different workmen, Stephen, Senator Douglas, Franklin, President Pierce, Roger, Chief Justice Taney, and James, President Buchanan, for instance, and when we see these timbers joined together and see they exactly make the frame of a house or a mill, all the tenons and mortises exactly fitting, and all the lengths and proportions of the different pieces exactly adapted to their respective places, and not a piece too many or too few, not omitting even the scaffolding, or if a single piece be lacking, we see the place in the frame exactly fitted and prepared to yet bring such piece in. In such a case, we feel it impossible not to believe that Stephen and Franklin and Roger and James all understood one another from the beginning and all worked upon a common plan or draft drawn before the first blow was struck. When my friend Judge Douglas came to Chicago on the 9th of July, this speech having been delivered on the 16th of June, he made an harangue there in which he took hold of this speech of mine, showing that he had carefully read it. And while he paid no attention to this matter at all, but complimented me as being a kind, amiable, and intelligent gentleman, notwithstanding I had said this, he goes on and deduces or draws out from my speech this tendency of mine to set the states at war with one another, to make all the institutions uniform, and set the niggers and white people to marry together. Then, as the judge had complimented me with these pleasant titles, I must confess to my weakness, I was a little taken, for it came from a great man. I was not very much accustomed to flattery, and it came the sweeter to me. I was rather like the hoosier with the gingerbread, when he said he reckoned he loved it better than any other man, and got less of it. As the judge had so flattered me, I could not make up my mind that he meant to deal unfairly with me. So I went to work to show him that he misunderstood the whole scope of my speech, and that I really never intended to set the people at war with one another. 
As an illustration, the next time I met him, which was at Springfield, I used this expression that I claimed no right under the Constitution, nor had I any inclination to enter into the slave states and interfere with the institutions of slavery. He says upon that, Lincoln will not enter into the slave states, but will go to the banks of the Ohio on this side and shoot over. He runs on, step by step, in the horse-chestnut style of argument, until in the Springfield speech he says, Unless he shall be successful in firing his batteries, until he shall have extinguished slavery in all the states, the Union shall be dissolved. Now, I don't think that was exactly the way to treat a kind, amiable, intelligent gentleman. I know if I had asked the judge to show when or where it was I had said that, if I didn't succeed in firing into the slave states until slavery should be extinguished, the Union should be dissolved. He could not have shown it. I understand what he would do. He would say, I don't mean to quote from you, but this was the result of what you say. But I have the right to ask, and I do ask now. Did you not put it in such a form that an ordinary reader or listener would take it as an expression from me? In a speech at Springfield, on the night of the 17th, I thought I might as well attend to my own business a little. And I recalled his attention as well as I could to this charge of conspiracy to nationalize slavery. I called his attention to the fact that he had acknowledged in my hearing twice that he had carefully read the speech, and in the language of the lawyers, as he had twice read the speech and still had put in no plea or answer, I took a default on him. I insisted that I had a right then to renew that charge of conspiracy. Ten days afterwards, I met the judge at Clinton, that is to say, I was on the ground, but not in the discussion, and heard him make a speech. Then he comes in with his plea to this charge, and for the first time, and his plea when put in, as well as I can recollect it, amounted to this, that he never had any talk with Judge Taney or the President of the United States with regard to the Dred Scott decision before it was made. I, Lincoln, ought to know that the man who makes a charge without knowing it to be true falsifies as much as he who knowingly tells a falsehood, and, lastly, that he would pronounce the whole thing a falsehood, but he would make no personal application of the charge of falsehood, not because of any regard for the kind, amiable, intelligent gentleman, but because of his own personal self-respect. I have understood since then, but turning to Judge Douglas, will not hold the judge to it if he is not willing. That he has broken through the self-respect and has got to saying the thing out. The judge nods to me that it is so. It is fortunate for me that I can keep as good-humored as I do when the judge acknowledges that he has been trying to make a question of veracity with me. I know the judge is a great man while I am only a small man. But I feel that I have got him. I demurred to that plea. I waive all objections that it was not filed until after default was taken, and demurred to it upon the merits. What if Judge Douglas never did talk with Chief Justice 
Taney and the President before the Dred Scott decision was made, does it follow that he could not have had as perfect an understanding without talking as with it? I am not disposed to stand upon my legal advantage. I am disposed to take his denial as being like an answer in chancery that he neither had any knowledge, information, nor belief in the existence of such a conspiracy. I am disposed to take his answer as being as broad as though he had put it in these words. And now I ask, even if he had done so, have not I a right to prove it on him and to offer the evidence of more than two witnesses by whom to prove it? And if the evidence proves the existence of the conspiracy, does his broad answer denying all knowledge, information, or belief disturb the fact? It can only show that he was used by conspirators and was not a leader of them. Now, in regard to his reminding me of the moral rule that persons who tell what they do not know to be true falsify as much as those who knowingly tell falsehoods, I remember the rule, and it must be borne in mind that in what I have read to you I do not say that I know such a conspiracy to exist. To that I reply, I believe it. If the judge says that I do not believe it, then he says what he does not know, and falls within his own rule that he who asserts a thing which he does not know to be true falsifies as much as he who knowingly tells a falsehood. I want to call your attention to a little discussion on that branch of the case and the evidence which brought my mind to the conclusion which I expressed as my belief. If, in arraying that evidence, I had stated anything which was false or erroneous, it needed but that Judge Douglas should point it out, and I would have taken it back with all the kindness in the world. I do not deal in that way. If I have brought forward anything not a fact, if he will point it out, it will not even ruffle me to take it back. But if he will not point out anything erroneous in the evidence, is it not rather for him to show by a comparison of the evidence that I have reasoned falsely than to call the kind, amiable, intelligent gentleman a liar? If I have reasoned to a false conclusion, it is the vocation of an able debater to show by argument that I have wandered to an erroneous conclusion. I want to ask your attention to a portion of the Nebraska bill which Judge Douglas has quoted. It being the true intent and meaning of this act not to legislate slavery into any territory or state, nor to exclude it therefrom, but to leave the people thereof perfectly free to form and regulate their domestic institutions in their own way, subject only to the Constitution of the United States. Thereupon, Judge Douglas and others began to argue in favor of popular sovereignty, the right of the people to have slaves if they wanted them, and to exclude slavery if they did not want them. But, said in substance, a senator from Ohio, Mr. Chase, I believe, we more than suspect that you do not mean to allow the people to exclude slavery if they wish to, and if you do mean it, Accept an amendment which I propose expressly authorizing the people to exclude slavery. 
I believe I have the amendment here before me which was offered and under which the people of the territory, through their proper representatives, might, if they saw fit, prohibit the existence of slavery therein. And now I state it as a fact, to be taken back if there is any mistake about it, that Judge Douglas and those acting with him voted that amendment down. I now think that those men who voted it down had a real reason for doing so. They know what that reason was. It looks to us, since we have seen the Dred Scott decision pronounced, holding that under the Constitution, the people cannot exclude slavery. I say it looks to outsiders, poor, simple, amiable, intelligent gentlemen, as though the niche was left as a place to put that Dred Scott decision in, a niche which would have been spoiled by adopting the amendment. And now I say again, if this was not the reason, it will avail the judge much more to calmly and good-humoredly point out to these people what that other reason was for voting the amendment down than swelling himself up to vociferate that he may be provoked to call somebody a liar. Again, there is in that same quotation from the Nebraska bill this clause. It being the true intent and meaning of this bill not to legislate slavery into any, any territory or state, I have always been puzzled to know what business the word state had in that connection. Judge Douglas knows. He put it there. He knows what he put it there for. We outsiders cannot say what he put it there for. The law they were passing was not about states and was not making provision for states. What was it placed there for? After seeing the Dred Scott decision, which holds that the people cannot exclude slavery from a territory, if another Dred Scott decision shall come, holding that they cannot exclude it from a state, we shall discover that when the word was originally put there, it was in view of something which was to come in due time. We shall see that it was the other half of something. I now say again, if there is any different reason for putting it there, Judge Douglas, in a good-humored way, without calling anybody a liar, can tell what the reason was. Now, my friends, I have but one branch of the subject in the little time I have left to which to call your attention, and as I shall come to a close at the end of that branch, it is probable that I shall not occupy quite all the time allotted to me, although on these questions I would like to talk twice as long as I have, I could not enter upon another head and discuss it properly without running over my time. I ask the attention of the people here assembled and elsewhere to the course that Judge Douglas is pursuing every day as bearing upon this question of making slavery national. Not going back to the records, but taking the speeches he makes, the speeches he made yesterday and the day before, and makes constantly all over the country, I ask your attention to them. In the first place, what is necessary to make the institution national, not war? There is no danger that the people of Kentucky will shoulder their muskets and with a young nigger stuck on every bayonet march into Illinois and force them upon us. 
There is no danger of our going over there and making war upon them. Then what is necessary for the nationalization of slavery? It is simply the next Dred Scott decision. It is merely for the Supreme Court to decide that no state under the Constitution can exclude it just as they have already decided that under the Constitution neither Congress nor the territorial legislature can do it. When that is decided and acquiesced in, the whole thing is done. This being true, and this being the way, as I think that slavery is to be made national, let us consider what Judge Douglas is doing every day to that end. In the first place, let us see what influence he is exerting on public sentiment. In this, and like communities, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can su succeed. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. He makes statutes and decisions possible or impossible to be executed. This must be borne in mind, as also the additional fact that Judge Douglas is a man of vast influence, so great that it is enough for many men to profess to believe anything when they once find out that Judge Douglas professes to believe it. Consider also the attitude he occupies at the head of a large party a party which he claims has a majority of all the voters in the country. This man sticks to a decision which forbids the people of a territory to exclude slavery, and he does so not because he says it is right in itself. He does not give any opinion on that, but because it has been decided by the court, and being decided by the court he is, and you are, bound to take it in your political action as law, not that he judges at all of its merits, but because a decision of the court is to him a thus saith the Lord. He places it on that ground alone, and you will bear in mind that thus committing himself unreservedly to this decision commits him to the next one just as firmly as to this. He did not commit himself on account of the merit or demerit of the decision. But it is a thus saith the Lord. The next decision, as much as this, will be a thus saith the Lord. There is nothing that can divert or turn him away from this decision. It is nothing that I point out to him that his great prototype, General Jackson, did not believe in the binding force of decisions. It is nothing to him that Jefferson did not so believe. I have said that I have often heard him approve of Jackson's course in disregarding the decision of the Supreme Court, pronouncing a national bank constitutional. He says I did not hear him say so. He denies the accuracy of my recollection. I say he ought to know better than I, but I will make no question about this thing though it still seems to me that I heard him say it twenty times. I will tell him, though, that he now claims to stand on the Cincinnati platform, which affirms that Congress cannot charter a national bank in the teeth of that old standing decision that Congress can charter a bank. And I remind him of another piece of history on the question of respect for judicial decisions. 
and it is a piece of Illinois history, belonging to a time when a large party to which Judge Douglas belonged were displeased with the decision of the Supreme Court of Illinois because they had decided that a governor could not remove a secretary of state. You will find the whole story in Ford's History of Illinois, and I know that Judge Douglas will not deny that he was then in favor of oversloughing that decision by the mode of adding five new judges so as to vote down the four old ones. Not only so, but it ended in the judges sitting down on the very bench as one of the five new judges to break down the four old ones. It was in this way precisely that he got his title of judge. Now when the judge tells me that men appointed conditionally to sit as members of a court will have to be catechized beforehand upon some subject, I say, you know, judge, you have tried it. When he says a court of this kind will lose the confidence of all men, will be prostituted and disgraced by such a proceeding, I say, you know best, judge, you have been through the mill. But I cannot shake Judge Douglas's teeth loose from the Dred Scott decision. Like some obstinate animal, I mean no disrespect, that will hang on when he has once got his teeth fixed, you may cut off a leg or you may tear away an arm. Still, he will not relax his hold. And so I may point out to the judge and say that he is bespattered all over from the beginning of his political life to the present time with attacks upon judicial decisions. I may cut off limb after limb of his public record and strive to wrench from him a single dictum of the court. Yet I cannot divert him from it. He hangs to the last, to the Dred Scott decision. These things show there is a purpose strong as death and eternity for which he adheres to this decision and for which he will adhere to all other decisions of the same court. A voice. Give us something besides Dred Scott. Yes, no doubt you want to hear something that don't hurt. Now, having spoken of the Dred Scott decision, one more word and I am done. Henry Clay, my beau ideal of a statesman, the man for whom I fought all my humble life, Henry Clay once said of a class of men who would repress all tendencies to liberty and ultimate emancipation, that they must, if they would do this, go back to the era of our independence and muzzle the cannon which thunders its annual joyous return. They must blow out the moral lights around us. They must penetrate the human soul and eradicate there the love of liberty. And then, and not till then, could they perpetuate slavery in this country. To my thinking, Judge Douglas is by his example and vast influence, doing that very thing in this community when he says that the Negro has nothing in the Declaration of Independence. Henry Clay plainly understood the contrary. Judge Douglas is going back to the era of our revolution and to the extent of his ability muzzling the cannon which thunders its annual joyous return. When he invites any people willing to have slavery to establish it, he is blowing out the moral lights around us. When he says he cares not whether slavery is voted down or voted up, 
that it is a sacred right of self-government, he is, in my judgment, penetrating the human soul and eradicating the light of reason and the love of liberty in this American people. And now I will only say that when by all these means and appliances Judge Douglas shall succeed in bringing public sentiment to an exact accordance with his own views, when these vast assemblages shall echo back all these sentiments, when they shall come to repeat his views and to avow his principles, and to say all that he says on these mighty questions, then it needs only the formality of the second Dred Scott decision, which he endorses in advance to make slavery alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. End of section 10. End of noted speeches of Abraham Lincoln, edited by Lillian Marie Briggs.